We began studying Judges at the first of the year, and since that point we've covered about 300 years of Israelite history, and most of the stories that we have studied have shown us that God's people were not much better than their pagan neighbors. It has been one epic failure after another. But today's chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 7, is sort of a bright spot. Um, It's also a turning point because the period of the judges is ending today. And we are finally going to break into a new period of history. And in doing this this morning, um, I'm going to take a break from my normal habit. And I'm going to read the entire story up front, which is not something I've been doing. Um, But it's short and it's, it's easy to remember, so... Um, Let's dive in this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. It says this, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth. From among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel cried, or sorry, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth-car. Then Samuel took a stone 
and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places, and then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is God's Word. There are three um, clear lessons in this chapter. And the first is that we see the character of true repentance. Okay, Repentance is not just sorrow, but action. Repentance is not just sorrow, but action. Verse 3 says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods. Specifically, Samuel mentions the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Okay? Baal was the male son of Ashtaroth. But according to the myth, they were also lovers. Okay? Um, these were the two foreign gods that Israel had the hardest time letting go of. They went back to these two gods again And again, and there's a very practical reason why. The answer is sexual temptation. The worship of these two gods required soliciting of prostitution and regular orgies. The people did these things as a form of sympathetic magic. Okay, So the idea was that by engaging in these actions, they could persuade the gods to make their crops fertile. Okay, So imagine how it might have went. Hey honey, don't wait up for me tonight. After work, me and the guys are going to go down to the temple for some worship. Do you see why this was a problem? This was damaging to families. It also reinforced bad theology that we can somehow convince God or gods to do something by our actions. This was very offensive to the one true God. It was a distortion of reality. But it was more fun than the worship God had commanded. And that is the bottom line. The people enjoyed that type of worship more. Else they wouldn't have been doing it. And that is always the lure of sin. Proverbs 9 says, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house 
She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, she says, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her, her guests are in the depths of Sheol. In other words, as one writer calls this, this is a banquet in the grave. That's how the Bible describes our tendency towards sin, sexual sin in particular. Okay? It's not me or the church that makes a big deal out of sexual sin. It is the Bible. And it comes up a lot. And in another proverb, it says that we return to sin like a a dog returns to its own vomit. Very nasty image, but that's the point. And Samuel says to the people and to us, if you're really sorry about all this, if you are really returning to the Lord in your heart, then put away the other gods. And that includes the sexual sin that comes with it. And it is important to notice that Samuel is not saying this as a condition, but he's actually saying it as a proof. It's an if-then statement. Okay? He's saying, if this is real, then this will happen. Okay? Their repentance does not earn God's favor. Instead, their repentance demonstrates the condition of their hearts before God. If your repentance is real, then God will be enough. If your repentance is not real, then you will go on worshiping false gods, no matter what you say, right? And Israel has had a tendency of saying the right things and doing the opposite. This is challenging to me personally because because it's me. Because my own apologies very often are all words and no action. And that means they're not very convincing because they're not really coming from the heart. Genuine repentance necessitates change. It, It... It looks like movement away from the sin and towards God. Now listen, God takes us the way He found us, right? That's the beauty of the gospel. doesn't matter what your life was like. doesn't matter what sins you've committed. God will take you the way He found you. It is a free gift. You don't earn it. But God doesn't leave us the way He found us. Does He? He takes us the way He finds us, but doesn't leave us where He found us. That would not be honoring to Him or dignifying to us. It wouldn't really be salvation. He is changing us. If the faith, if the repentance is real. Second, notice the central importance of prayer to this story. And this is point number two. Sometimes prayer is our only real option. 
And that's exactly where God wants His people. Sometimes God lets us get to the point when prayer is our only natural response to the circumstances that we are in. He intentionally leaves us completely helpless without Him. On purpose. And notice that it's not even our own prayers. It's not even Israelites' own prayers that saved them, but the prayers of Samuel, right? And of course, it's God that's actually saving them, but he's using the prayers of Samuel. Verse 5, I will pray to the Lord for you. Emphasis mine. And then after the Philistines attack, the people tell Samuel, do not cry out or do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us, our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Okay, so after 300 years of half hearted worship. This is literally, in my opinion, the best of Israel. This is it. Not the mighty warriors, not saints, clearly, but helpless and humble and prayerful. And they don't even trust their own prayers. And that's the beauty of it to me. They are intentionally looking at a mediator, an intercessor. To stand in the gap for them. This is the best of Israel that we have seen so far. Prayer is the posture of true repentance. The impulse of someone who is repenting is not to go out and try to fix things on our own and to make them right by our own power or our own intelligence or our own willpower. The impulse of a repentant soul is to turn from sin and immediately turn to God. And not even that through my own efforts or even by the quality or the quantity of my prayers, but through a mediator. We engage God through Christ. And this story is so awesome because the gospel is literally hanging all over it. Before, I, before we make that clear, I want to I show you one more thing. Okay, Third and finally, <clears throat> notice that victory comes through sacrifice. Literally while Samuel is sacrificing, Israel achieves victory. It's happening at the same time. And it wasn't just any sacrifice. It was actually a very unique sacrifice. Um, it was a nursing lamb. And to my knowledge, this is the only sacrifice in the entire Bible that describes the lamb as nursing. And it's an interesting detail that the writer gives, and I think it's for a couple of reasons. First of all, a nursing lamb was just a couple of months old. If you separate a baby lamb from its mom, 
that lamb is going to struggle wildly. The worst thing that could happen in the mind of a baby lamb is to be separated from its mom. The loud, panicked, high-pitched bleeding of that lamb would be heard in the entire camp. And that cry would be absolutely devastating to the mom. I just want you to picture that. The mother sheep would pace back and forth. She would start to cry out and bleat for her lamb to return. And after some significant time, the lamb will actually grieve the loss. Which means this was a particularly powerful sacrifice. A sacrifice not just by the baby lamb, but by the mom. And yet the message was communicated loud and clear to the humans who were listening and watching this sacrifice. Victory only comes through painful separation, through loss, through suffering. And again, this is heavy. It's heavier than we want it to be. But this is what preserving the glory of God looks like. Israel wins the battle at the same time the lamb is slaughtered. Afterward, Samuel raises up a stone monument that the Bible calls an Ebenezer. Ebenezer, which is a stone or a pile of stones, um, means stone of help. He raises it up on the field of battle. And the writer tells us the deeper meaning behind the stone. He says, till now the Lord has helped us, or this far the Lord has helped us. The irony is, Samuel sets it up on the site of Israel's defeat from chapter 4. Do you remember that? It says in chapter 4, and Israel was defeated on the field of Ebenezer. The same place where they lost the previous battle is the place where Samuel puts the stone. And what that means is that in a very real sense, for all the people who lost a son or a husband or a father on that battlefield, it was a memorial of both victory and defeat. Now, I don't know if this is significant, but I found myself asking, why a stone? Why put a big rock or a pile of rocks? Why is that the monument? And practically speaking, right, it, it will last a long time because rocks don't go away so easily. 
But it's also an extremely heavy option. And with all the emphasis on God's glory, which we have said is His heaviness in the book of 1 Samuel so far, I can't help but wonder if that's part of the meaning. In summarizing this chapter, Tim Chester writes this. He says, People who take God's glory seriously repent. And people who take God's glory seriously are able to stand in His presence because God takes His own glory seriously through sacrifice. So what he's saying is he's he's highlighting the relationship between God's glory and the gospel. And it's important. How does the Bible describe our problem? Our sin. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. And how does God preserve His glory and deal with our sin? Romans 3 continues, We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, there's that word from our call to worship, by His blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is a big word and it's a big idea. It means that God put forward His own Son as a way to satisfy His own wrath for our sins. In other words, Jesus was like the nursing lamb in 1 Samuel. Or rather, the nursing lamb was like Jesus. It's a better way to put it. You see, it was not just the suffering and the death of Jesus, but His separation from the Father. Demonstrated by Jesus when He cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see it? Isn't it cool? Our Ebenezer is the cross. The cross shows us the seriousness of sin, the weight of God's glory, and God's grace for sinners. This is why we literally look at the cross so often as Christians, why we talk about it so often. We're literally saying, this is how far the Lord has helped us. This is the lengths by which God was willing to go to secure our help. This is how far He's helped me. You know, they rolled away, or they rolled another heavy stone over the grave of Jesus. And it was a temporary monument to the curse of death. And God took that stone and He brushed it aside like a pebble when Christ rose from that grave full of glory. 
God's glory, brothers and sisters, is like a heavy stone. We will either be crushed under its weight or we will stand firmly on the rock of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, may we not take Your glory for granted. May we not be crushed under the weight of our sin and guilt because we refuse to recognize that You are the Creator, the Sustainer, the Giver, the Redeemer. May we see this morning the cross is not just a a gentle thing, but a costly thing, a serious thing, that the crushing weight of Your wrath that we deserve fell on Christ. That for a moment, the Father and the Son were separated like that lamb. And He cried out in the midst of it. And it should have been us. And it will be without Your grace. So Father, as we worship You, as we think about these things, as we take them to heart, I pray that Your grace would wash over us and convict us and lead us to repentance that is real and active and obvious, not for our glory, but for Yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.